I was teaching a class several years ago. It was a, a neat opportunity uh, with Alabama Southern Community College, state community college. And they, uh, they called up and said, We're, we want to offer a, uh, a class in Old Testament and a class in New Testament and a class in ethics. I said, Amen. I said, When do you want me to start? And so we, we, we came up with how we wanted to teach it and that sort of thing. And, and really, it, it makes sense that if you're going to an institute of higher learning, uh, you certainly have an incomplete education if you don't study the most influential book in the history of man. Uh, matter of fact, it was no less a person than Daniel Webster that said that. You can't call yourself educated if you haven't studied the Bible. And so we would study the Bible. I was teaching a class in the New Testament, and we got to the, the topic of baptism. And we were looking at the New Testament. It was not teaching Presbyterianism. I was not teaching denominationalism. I was looking at the Bible uh, in terms of its history, looking at it in terms of its literary style, and looking at it in terms of its meaning. For we would never study Shakespeare uh, without saying, now this is what Shakespeare was trying to say. So I'm completely in line to say this is what God said and this is what He's saying through this text. And we're talking about the issue of baptism. And we were looking at uh, the different historical discussions of the doctrine of baptism. And in looking at baptism, uh, I was, was talking about the different methods and manners of baptism. Uh, if you, you think about dunking and sprinkling and pouring. Or if you want to get all theological, you could say uh, um, immersion, uh, aspersion, or effusion. We've got to come up with words. That keeps pastors employed and keeps seminaries operating. To come up with phrases like that, well, a sweet little old lady was taking this class just because she wanted to take some more classes. She was taking this class, and she raised her hand, and she said, well, well now, Mr. Bowman, I, I, I just have to say, I was, I was talking about different modes of baptism. And he said, every, every picture, she said, every picture I've ever seen of Jesus being baptized, they were dunking him. Well, first, that's not the case. You go back and look historically. There's all different types. There's, there's a wonderful uh, old artwork of, of, of John the Baptist pouring water across him. There's diff- different, different artworks. But the biggest thing I wanted to, to bring up was the fact that, well, you know, you know that artists wasn't sitting there on the banks painting that as he watched it. <laughs> that, that artwork is interpretation. Artwork, just talking about, I wasn't trying to convince people of one particular view, but just presenting them out there. There's a danger in that whole idea that a picture is worth a thousand words. There's, there's, there's actually a greater truth, I think, in saying that a hundred words, like we've got in front of us today, not that a picture is worth a thousand words, but that a hundred words could be worth a thousand pictures. Just looking very clearly at this passage before us. We look at this and we think about how many times have we seen Jesus kneeling down, a picture of Jesus kneeling down, and little children, and he's wrapping his arms around them, and what do we do? We look at that and what do we say? Oh, exactly, I knew that. He, he got it right. We say awe, oh, we think about it. It's more than just a cute interlude in the ministry of Jesus. It's a vital moment of instruction in front of us right here as His disciples. Because remember, His time with them is drawing near. His, his time with them is almost done. Every moment He teaches, every moment He corrects them, every moment He instructs them. And why does He need to do that? Well, over two and a half years are gone now. He's, he's down to these final, really, days. And they're going to have to carry on this ministry when he's gone. And so we see this critical event in the life of Jesus. Let's look at it together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. This is God's Word. And they were bringing children to him, that is to Jesus, that he might touch them. 
And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that you would bless it to our hearts and our lives, Father. May we we look to it, may we be changed, Father. May we not be like the man who gazes for a moment and then forgets what he sees. Father, may we be changed in our going forward by your word. We thank you that it fades not, that it withers not, but that it endures. In Jesus' name, amen. The story itself is real, real, real straightforward. It's, it's not an allegory. It's not uh, anything with hidden meaning. It's a straightforward event in the life of Jesus. Some parents, it says, they brought their children. They were bringing children. The clear implication there is it would have been parents. It would have been guardians. It would have been family members that would be bringing Jesus, asking him to bless their children. It was actually a quite common thing that, that children would be brought in formal times to rabbis that they would be uh, would be blessed. There would be a particular uh, blessing bestowed upon them in specific times, in specific seasons, for specific reasons. But they were bringing, they were requesting that these, these children uh, would, would be received by Jesus, would be blessed. And so the disciples said, you know what, parents, now's not the time. Uh, just keep your children away. It says that the disciples rebuked them. They didn't just discourage them. They said, no. They, they drew the line. They said, no, 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 no. You can't bother the master. Now is not the time. Now is not the place. But the significance of this event is, is, is incredible. That This was not just a passing moment where, you know, it, some people were coming at a, a difficult time, uh, coming at a, an awkward moment, but it was a significant moment of instruction. Matter of fact, so much so that we find this in all three of the synoptic Gospels. Remember the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We refer to the first three as synoptic Gospels, same word like synopsis. Uh, basically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are explaining to us the, the, basically the progression of the events in the life of Jesus. John is in a different category. It, it still is a faithful uh, discussion of the life of Jesus, but does focus more on, on the, the theology and so some of the other implications of his ministry. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, all record this event. They all record this event and record it in remarkably similar words. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke writing these, downs, writing these things down. God did not take away from them their humanity. He did not dictate it to them mechanically, write these exact words. He used their personality. He used their perspective. He used their frame of reference. Remember Matthew writing from a Jewish perspective. Luke writing particularly to make sure that a Gentile audience would understand it, particularly his dear friend Theophilus. Uh, we see the words in this particular story uh, to be remarkably center, similar in the three texts. Well, the disciples, they rebuke the parents. They, you say, you can't bother the master right now. He has more important issues. He has more important people to deal with. He has more important things to attend to. Now, remember, <laughs> remember what has been occupying their conversation to this point. Think about the last time we read about Jesus rebuking uh, his disciples. It was over the argument that they were having along the way. What were they arguing about? I want to be first. I want to be the most important in your kingdom. When you come into the kingdom, Lord, I want to be the one there at your right hand. 
I want to be your trusted advisor. I want, if you're taking a nap, I want everybody to come to me in the interim. If, if something should happen and you're unable to fulfill the obligations of your, of your office, I want them to come to me as your vice. They'd been arguing about who was the most important uh, among the twelve. Military, see this all the time. Uh, the, one of the biggest things in military now is, is in, when you get performance reviews, you want to be stratified. To be stratified is saying, you know, that a commander would say, I have 30 officers under my uh, authority, and this is number two of the 30, or number one of 30, and want to be stratified in some way. And these guys were all jockeying to be number one of 12. They wanted to be the most important. But it says Jesus was indignant. Look at that with me. It says, when Jesus saw this, what did he see? He saw the disciples rebuking the parents and standing between him and the children. And it says Jesus was indignant with this. Now, these, these are actually two Greek words that have been smushed together. They've been smushed together to make a point, literally meaning much grief. Much grief is what Jesus is, is experiencing here, that it's just, it's troubling to him. It stirs him up. He is, uh, he's angry about it, and, and his heart hurts because of what he sees. We see similar emotions going on about the... Uh, uh, the man, remember the man with the withered hand? And there was that great debate about whether or not that you could heal on the Sabbath day. Uh, the same, same type of emotion welling up in that moment. Um, we see Jesus experiencing this when he sees the hardness in the hearts of those around who are not hearing the gospel. And it says that Jesus, he was upset. He was angry. And we look at this and, and see how did he handle it. Now, we think, would this maybe have been a good occasion for Jesus to, to lean in to the disciples and say, now guys, guys, listen. Let me talk to you. This is okay. I, I, I got time. I'll, I'll spend some time with kids. I appreciate what you're trying to do, but, but no. He, he doesn't downplay this. He, he, he jumps in here in a gentle and hushed tone. He doesn't jump in here and do that. He, he, it says that he rebukes them. And he turns to them. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And then he uses that as a moment to teach a lesson. And the very reason, I believe the reason that Jesus was indignant is this, that he was emphatic about the message that needed to get out. A a message that was being hindered by the heart attitude of the disciples. The attitude of the disciples were saying, the twelve are the most important, and of the twelve, I'm the most important. It was that idea of of self-centered, self-righteous greatness that they were, were welling up saying, whoa, 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 whoa. It's our time with Jesus The time is drawing near, he keeps saying. We don't really understand what's going on, but it's time for us to be with Jesus. And we need to understand that there are no people. We need to know this. There are no people that are unworthy of Jesus' attention. There are no people that are beneath His time, His love, His energy, and His effort. And that's an amazing thing to consider when we consider who Jesus is. And if we're not amazed by that, we need to go back and revisit this from the ground up. There are no people that are beneath Jesus' time, attention, and energy. Now, we think about that. We think about that in the reality of the world today, and we think, you know what, there are important people and there are unimportant people. We, we, we see that type of stratification out there. I think about several years ago under uh, the administration of President Bush 43. I uh, had, had a dear friend, Mark Schumach. Uh, his dad, Ron Schumach, uh, was a professor at Auburn, uh, elder down in Monroeville. Um, uh, Mark would come back to, uh, to worship with his family at Monroeville when I was there. Mark's job was working on the Secret Service. And the kids thought it was cool 
when he would come because they knew he was packing. Hey, he's a secret service. He was always armed, and he would tell some of the best stories, stories about, uh, about traveling with the president. He, for a long while, was on detail out at the ranch guarding the daughters, and then he became part of the advance team going with the president all around the world. And, and really an important part of, of the president's administration. But here's one of the things he talked about as a highlight of his career. It was two minutes, two minutes with the president. Two minutes with the president he had. Somebody, a trusted member of his staff, yet it took him months to get two minutes with the president so that he and his mom and dad could have a picture. Just to walk in there, shake hands with the president of the United States, and have a picture. And, and really what happened was, they were brought through, they were vetted out in the front area and received and waited in a line. Several hours worth of anticipation and preparation, several months worth of uh, applying to, to make this happen, for all for really for two minutes uh, to be there in the Oval Office, to wait in line, to shake hands with the president, to smile, say cheese, we'll get the pictures to you when they're printed. Right? And they just got moved right on along. And it's because the president's time was limited. The president's ability to see folks was, was limited, and this was an important man, and these, though, important other people. We start looking and saying, okay, in this world, there's important people and there's unimportant people, or less important people. But we, and we certainly would expect nothing less, this idea of, of, you know, time with the president's pretty precious. But when we deal with our Savior, when we're looking at our Savior, we need to, we need to be amazed by what we see. We need to pause and think about how significant this is. Our president, um, excuse me, our savior, more powerful, more eternally vital than all the presidents put together. And he only has three years of public ministry. And, and it's almost all gone now. And there are people clamoring for his attention. And he paints a picture for us in this, in this moment. These little ones, he says, they're important. They're important. Now, we live in a day where... We think we get it, but we actually idolize youth today. We pander to youth. We rearrange our adult lives to be chauffeurs and to provide for all the things that our children need, and we call that love. And yet we, we, we do love, and we love in many different ways, but, but we need to understand, first off, it's not always healthy that we make our children the center of our lives, uh, but it's certainly not the historical norm. We find in this context in particular that children occupied a very different place and Jesus moves them into a very particular place. They were occupying in the day of Jesus a very particular place and that is that they really weren't good for much yet. My dad had that saying, especially for a mouthy little kid. He said, you know, children should be seen and not heard. He missaid that one time. He said, children should be seen and not had. I, th- I think he misspoke. <laughs> but in this time that, that children were recognized as, as childhood was a necessary stage on the, the journey to maturity, but they didn't have any rights. They didn't have any status. They really didn't have any importance. Now, Mark talks about this, and he uses the word paideia, uh, meaning little children, that, that little children were brought to him. Luke, when he's talking about this, he actually uses a different word, and and the only reason I throw this in there is so that we understand that the children that were coming to him, Mark uses the word paideia, meaning little children. Luke uses the word brephos, which, which means uh, nursing infants. 
So parents were just babes in arms, little children being dragged along. You think about the crying, you think about the wandering, you think about the spontaneous noise and everything that was going on with these immature little children coming to Jesus and the disciples saying, uh, no, you can't come see the, the, the master. And the parents saying, please, can he bless my child? Well, surely the disciples said, Jesus' time is spent better elsewhere, isn't it? And plus, if you think about it, in that day from a pharisaical point of view, these children really didn't have much value because they even have a place before God because they hadn't been able to do all the things necessary yet to to earn God's love. In a pharisaical system, uh, they were looking and saying, they've not done good yet, so what standing do they have before God? Well, Jesus, in doing this, changes our attitude to children in particular, but also to the unimportant in general. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, The last time we saw a little child was when Jesus placed him right there in front of the disciples and he was talking to them about what it meant that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. God's attention to nobodies. And these little children certainly would have been seen by the world in Jesus' day as nobodies and unworthy of Jesus' time. And so they said, let's send them away. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, have you ever thought about how many times that was their answer? We just need to send them away. <laughs> you think about the time when, uh, when they had thousands sitting there on the hillside listening to Jesus, and it became dinner time, and they said, wow, Jesus, tick-tock, there's not enough food around. Just, just, just send them away. We see that a couple of times. Send them away. But what Jesus is saying, no, no, let them come. The, uh, the King James Word, it's an interesting, I use that as the title for the sermon today. Jesus turned to him, he says, no, suffer the little children to come unto me, right? And that's an odd way to phrase it, isn't it? That idea of suffer the little children to come unto me. Suffer the little children, that's a, that's a strange phrase. Kind of sounds like it might be the title of a horror movie or something. Suffer the little children. But what Jesus is literally saying is that you need to set yourself aside. You need to step aside and and, and lay these things off. You need to, if it be suffering, then you need to permit them to come. If it be inconvenient for you, you need to bear that inconvenience. If it be troubling to you, you need to endure it because this is vital, it's important, and it's a moment for us to learn. Two things I, I want us to see from the text, most particularly about things that we learn Jesus is teaching us that these little children have a place and that there's so much that we can learn from it. The first thing is that we do learn and we do see God's special love for our children. A special love. And it's more than just Jesus loves children. You know, every politician will tell you they love children. They're going to kiss them, right? They're going to take pictures with them. It's a politically good thing that you're a family guy, you love children. But there's a special love in particular for those who are brought to God by their parents. It's significant in our covenant theology. Our covenant theology, as we go back to Genesis chapter 17, God talking to Abram, or Abraham at that point, He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, your children after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your children, to your offspring. Absolutely, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. And I will give to you, he repeats it, and to your children after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting 
possession and I will be their God. Our covenant theology recognizes this, that God, as we are called unto Him, that He establishes that special relationship with our children as well. Now what that does not mean is that just being born in the right household gets you saved and into heaven. And we need to always guard against that. We do not get to claim, as the the Pharisees didn't, we don't get to claim that we're a father Abraham, so we've got a free pass. (laughs) We're a legacy. We're we're able to get into that grand fraternity uh, without any effort on our own. But no, but God does bear with us and gives us extraordinary blessing. And that's not just something that was, was in the time of Abraham way, 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 way long ago. But we'll pick up with it shortly when we look at the ministry of even Peter at the time of Pentecost. The sermon at Pentecost when he says, For the promise is to you and to your children. Children. What Jesus is saying is that these children, there is blessing. And the children are blessed as we bring them to Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean for us as a church? It means that as we teach them, as we love them, as we... Oh, that's what happened there. Sorry about that. It all worked up. Children get worried that I get unleashed here. I might, I might roam the earth. I think we're okay. I'm going to stay still. <laughs> I'm backing up. The. Um, uh, that with our, with our children, that we, we, do, we do bring them, that we teach them, that we instruct them, we love them, that we open up God's Word with them. We don't just simply entertain them. We don't just simply uh, put them in a place where they're not going to be uh, intrusive on our worship. You know, I uh, was thinking about even this past week, Donald's has to it, as we were gathered for worship and that sort of thing. At one worship service, I was sitting there, and there was a crying baby. And, uh, and I was, you know, for a moment, was sitting there going, oh, just take that baby out. But what a wonderful thing. The mom was able to, as a matter of fact, watching others kind of standing around and, and you know, smiling and encouraging the mom, saying, it's okay. It's all right. It's okay. I remember Pastor Henry Lewis Smith once said, uh, he said, I'd, I'd much rather have a crying baby in a worship service than a sleeping elder. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if he had someone particularly in mind, but it made a point. What another pastor said was that the only child that bothers me is the child that's not there. John Calvin observed it this way. He says, this story, this story is very useful. It teaches us that Christ does not receive only those who voluntarily come to Him out of a holy desire and moved by faith. That's not the only crowd that he pays attention to. Calvin goes on, he says, but also those who may not yet be old enough to realize how much they need His grace. These small children still have no understanding that they should seek the blessing, and yet when they are brought to Him, He receives them kindly and lovingly, and He consecrates them to His Father in a solemn ceremony of blessing. And Jesus blesses, blesses this moment. Another pastor, J.C. Ryle, an Anglican, uh, he wrote this. He said, Let us learn from these verses that the Lord Jesus cares tenderly for the souls of our children. As young as they are, They are not beneath His thought or His attention. That mighty heart of His has room for the babe in the cradle as well as the king on the throne. He regards each infant as possessing within its little body an undying principle which will outlive the pyramids of Egypt and to see the sun and moon quenched at that last day and Jesus cares for their souls. 
So we do see first in this passage so very clearly. But that's not the only thing we see. That's not the only thing we see. The other thing we see is that Jesus uses this opportunity, the opportunity of the parents bringing the children to, to teach. To teach the disciples and to teach them, I believe, a second lesson in humility. Once again, he places a little child in their midst and he talks to them about their haughty and boastful spirits. The last time we saw it, just a chapter ago in Mark chapter 9, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he places the little child in the midst of them. Talking about ministering to that child, loving that little child, receiving that little child. In fact, in this incident, we see a great lesson for us, and that is that we must aspire to a Christ-honoring, childlike lowliness. That we should honor Jesus by coming humbly, simply, dependently, like little children, like dirty little children right out of the mud, been playing outside. You might need changing, you might need cleaning, you might be loud and crying, and there'll be those who say, no, 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 you can't come to Jesus. And, and our Savior says, no, no, come. And that's the way to come, come as little children. One pastor wrote of this, he said, Jesus insisted that the kingdom belongs to those who come in a condition of spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom belongs to us as we acknowledge that we are bankrupt. John uh, Augustus Toplady wrote it. He said, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. If you don't wash me, Jesus, I die. We come spiritually bankrupt. But the disciples were still casting off that pride, were they not? We're going to see it again in less than a chapter, really in about 20 verses. We're going to see the sons of Zebedee getting Mama to go and talk to Jesus, hoping to convince Him that they would have the, the prominent seats in the coming kingdom. It's James and John again, if you don't remember how that relationship... The sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, James and John go and get Zebedee's wife, their mom, to go to Jesus and try to twist His arm saying, please, 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 when you come into your kingdom, let my sons have an important place. For who can turn down the request of a mama? Proverbs 16, 18 says this, Before a downfall goes pride, and before stumbly goes a haughty spirit. And we see Scripture littered with the corpses of those, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod Agrippa, those who in their pride fell, and mighty was their falling. But Jesus says this, The kingdom of God belongs not to the haughty, but to the humble. This little child you're trying to turn away, I don't turn them away, I love them. I receive them. The kingdom of God belongs not to the first, but to the last. Not to the proud, but to the meek. Not to the king, but the servant. We need to learn from the disciples' error here. They experience, remember the word, they experience the indignation of Jesus. The indignation of Jesus. They saw His face. In our years together, you're going to find out that you... I don't know if any of you play poker, but uh, I will not play with you. I, I have a horrible poker face. I, I, I tend to wear my thoughts right here. I have, I have to imagine that, that Jesus' face... 
turned as, as, as mine can when I get upset. I, I think about Jesus' face at that moment turning when the disciples said, shooing the parents away, don't, bring, don't bother the master. And to see the, the anger in the eyes of Jesus, I think, what a horrible thing to see. To hear the, the, the edge to the, the, the tone of Jesus. To hear the words, remember that indignation means much, grief. Why was that there in the, in, in the life and the mannerism of our Savior? It's because these disciples, they saw it easier. They saw it simpler. They saw it more expedient to just send them away. You know, the many that needed feeding, send them away. The noisy children, send them away. As they continue to clamor for more importance of the right and the left hand of Jesus. Let us take a passage like this. Let us rejoice that our Savior has time for the unimportant folks, the nobodies like us that we would have time, that we would suffer the little children to come unto Him and that we would recognize that we, unless we stand like those helpless, humble little children before the throne of God, then we try to stand there in our own power. And the downfall that comes from that is horrible. But it says this, Jesus took the children, He took them into His arms, He blessed them, and He embraced them. As we come humbly before God, that's what we experience. His love, His embrace, and His eternal blessing. If you find that today that you have been been struggling with standing before God in your own righteousness, your own accomplishment, your, your own strength, that you have been seeing that God really is very, very lucky to have you on His team, uh, make today be the day that you repent of that haughty spirit. Come humbly. Say, thank you, Lord Jesus that I have not been sent away, that you have embraced me, and I know your blessing. Let that be our prayer today. Pray with me. Lord God, as we go forth into this new week of your goodness, of your grace, of your provision, Father, we confess that we far too often think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But Lord, may we come as little children before your throne of grace. May we look to you as our Savior, lifting up our hands that we might be embraced that we might be loved and blessed. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. May it wash over us and may it strengthen us as we go forth in the power and the strength of your name. For we do lift this up in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.